This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Mark Sanders as he considers a different way of thinking about the decision between celibacy or marriage. Mark is the Director of Discipleship for Harvest USA. This episode was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly. Let's listen as Mark discusses leaning on God's will, especially when shepherding someone who is struggling with same-sex attraction. All right. Well, it is a privilege to be speaking with you all this afternoon. Uh, As was already mentioned, I am Mark Sanders, and I'm the fairly new president of Harvest USA. I've been with the ministry for about nine years, and um, taking on this new role has been one of great... uh, testing of my faith and grace, but also great blessing as well. And um, this talk that I'm going to be giving this afternoon is a further fleshing out of an article I wrote for our blog with the same title, uh, Celibacy, Marriage, and, or Surrender. And that article came out of a season of study that I did last summer on many of the issues that the PCA has been wrestling with for the past few, few years regarding same-sex attraction and how to understand and help those who struggle with it. And I want to say first and foremost that to everyone in the, um, as a brother in Christ from the OPC, I have tremendously benefited from the labors of many of you in this area. I know how much toil has gone into carefully thinking through these issues, and I firmly believe the work that is and has been done over these past few years will serve the church greatly for decades, even century to come. And if the Lord tarries, I believe church, history, church historians will look back at the PCA and this season of time when the church came to greater clarity on these issues, uh, both in terms of theological conviction, but also pastoral wisdom to know how to walk with and encourage those who struggle. And as painful and difficult as controversy often is, God uses it. To, as a means of bringing doctrinal clarity to the church going forward. And so my hope is that this talk will be a very small contribution uh, to this discussion, particularly as it relates to the pastoral side of these issues. I've had the privilege of walking with many men of all ages who struggle with same-sex attraction, and I've learned many things from them and what their experience is like. And the most important thing I've learned is that no two experiences are the same. Wise, loving, and helpful shepherding of God's people cannot be done apart from taking the time to truly know the people you're ministering to. 
and the unique individuals that make up your individual churches. I often tell our staff that one of the most dangerous things we can do as helpers is to assume that we know what someone needs before getting to know them first. Every single person is a unique image bearer of God with a unique story, a unique background, um, challenges, and dreams. Not only does deep listening build trust with someone so that they're more willing to listen and hear from you, but it's also essential to truly know what is helpful for them. But we can't stop there because it will do no one any good to only hear their story without a framework to process that story. And this is where a rock-solid biblical anthropology, doctrine of sin, sanctification, and union with Christ are essential. Because we have to interpret what we're hearing through the unashamed biblical lens of understanding that the Bible gives the best framework, not only for understanding people, but also what will be best for their human flourishing. So we have to know our doctrine, and we have to know our people. They are both essential. And so with this in mind, I I want this talk to focus on a very particular issue that comes up frequently when ministering specifically to single men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction. And this is the question of marriage. Every single person asks this question some more frequently than others. Will I get married someday? Do I want to be married? And if so, when? How should I go about finding a spouse? Uh, What things excite me about marriage? What things scare me about marriage? How will I know if I found the right person? We've all asked these questions. But for our brothers and sisters who wrestle with exclusive same-sex attraction, meaning that they don't find themselves generally attracted to anyone of the opposite sex, there can be some unique questions that they're wrestling with. For many, they have to wrestle with what the Bible says about marriage and whether there's any case to be made for a God-blessed same-sex union. For those who, by God's grace, recognize the clear teaching of Scripture that marriage is only for one man and one woman, now the question becomes, is marriage even possible for me? Do I even want to be married? If I have to remain single my whole life, how will I deal with that? And is that God's best for me? If I do get married, what if I struggle to desire my spouse sexually? Does God want me to get married, or does he want me to remain single? What will other people think of me if I never get married? When should I tell my girlfriend or boyfriend that I struggle with same-sex attraction, and how will they respond? There are some unique challenges presented to our brothers and sisters in these situations, and it's to these challenges that I want to address two common responses that I've often heard to these challenges and then present a third approach. And so let's dive into these three approaches. The first one is entitled the celibacy solution. And this is a response that says that if you struggle with exclusive same-sex attraction, the only realistic option available to you is a life of committed celibacy. And this argument is really based on two fundamental presuppositions. Uh, The first one is that for most people, your same-sex attraction will remain a lifelong experience And you will most likely never experience any type of desire for a spouse of the opposite sex. That's the first presupposition. The second one is that sexual desire before marriage for your potential spouse is an essential component for determining whether you should pursue marriage. 
These two presuppositions are almost required for the celibacy solution to make any sense. The solution sees the possibility of marriage as fairly unrealistic for our brothers and sisters who wrestle with exclusive same-sex desires. So it's better not to expect marriage, but instead expect a life of celibacy. And as I go through this talk today, uh, you'll see how I address those two uh, presuppositions. But there are some other beliefs that usually often accompany this commitment to celibacy as well that are not essential for the argument, but do lend further support for its claims. And those beliefs are, number one, that sexual desire is core to one's identity. That this is not only an experience that I have, but it's also a part of who I am. And therefore, identifying as a celibate gay Christian is often used. And the more one identifies as gay, the more unthinkable it would be that marriage would ever be a possibility. Along with this is often the belief that having same-sex desires is a morally neutral experience, and therefore not something that is in need of any change as long as the temptation to act on those desires is being adequately dealt with. So that's a really quick summary of the celibacy solution. Now I want to look at what are the pros of this approach and what are some cons to this approach. So first of all, the pros to the celibacy solution. It is commendable to see our brothers and sisters testify to the reality that Christ is all-satisfying. If following Christ means that they will never experience sexual satisfaction, they willingly take up that cross. This choice of celibacy also points the entire church to what is eternal. Human marriage was designed by God to be a temporary sign that gives way to the reality of the church's eternal union with her bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The celibacy solution also recognizes the reality that there are many struggles in this life that God may allow to remain formidable foes until we see Jesus face to face. Lastly, the celibacy solution reminds us that while marriage is a blessing for many, it is not a requirement for all. We can't escape Paul's provocative words when he states that he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Paul sees great advantage for the sake of the kingdom if people will remain single. Their attention is allowed to remain undivided, solely focused on serving Christ and his people. We need singles in the kingdom of God. God will call many men and women to forgo marriage for the sake of the kingdom. And we are all recipients of the benefits that come from these specific callings. The celibacy solution helps us to remember that singleness is not a curse, but a blessing for the individual in their intimacy with Christ and for the church in their availability to serve her needs. So those are some of the pros, but there are some cons to the solution, as you might expect. What are some of the issues with the celibacy solution? Well, first, this solution typically comes from an unbiblical premise, spoken or unspoken, which states, my exclusive same-sex attraction is immutable, unchangeable, and God almost certainly will do nothing about it. It would seem that this theology places same-sex desires in a unique category from other sins. When Jesus does a radical work of bringing a dead heart to life, making someone a new creation, this particular area is unreachable from God's grace. This belief goes hand in hand with another premise that same-sex desire, if not consciously acted upon, is morally neutral. As long as you don't allow the attraction to give birth to lust, there's 
no need to change because this is not an area in need of repentance. But the church has historically rejected the premise which only identifies sin in the realm of conscious choice. The Bible makes it clear in places like James 1, 14 through 15 and Jeremiah 17, 9 that the fall has corrupted not only our choices but our desires as well. Well, it's an important thing to maintain a distinction between what we would call indwelling sin and what we would call willful sin. Both are in need of redemption. When we limit the scope of sin's reach, we also limit the scope of the gospel's reach, which in turn diminishes the glory due to our Savior's name. Some see same-sex attraction as morally neutral because they often will see their desires or attractions as integral to their identity. So to lose this desire would be to lose a part of themselves that they do not want to lose. Whether it be a sense of creativity, uh, cultural tastes, or the way they interact with friends, they see their desires as foundational to their being. But I would argue that to whatever degree repentance changes our preferences or the ways we interact with others, that can only be a good thing. The call to repent of all sinful desires is a non-negotiable. But this will be impossible if desire and identity are inseparably linked. And what this does over the long term is that it makes faithfulness to Christ more difficult than it needs to be. Faithfulness is already difficult enough. We, we don't need further encumbrances and hindrances in that journey of faith. How someone responds to the presence of sin in their life makes a huge difference in how they fight it. If being gay is core to your identity and who you are, how much stamina will you really have to continue to deny you? How long can you continue to fight? It is a recipe, recipe ultimately, for, for burnout and eventual hopelessness. I've heard testimony after testimony of young men and women who have tried to fight against homosexual desires for years, maybe decades. But all along, they believed that this was who they were. And eventually, it became pointless to keep fighting. I once heard a man say that his same-sex attraction was like living in a desert. He was constantly thirsting for water and felt like there was no place to satiate his thirst. He wanted to walk faithfully with Jesus, but he wasn't experiencing that living water welling up inside of him. Why was that? Well, there could be many reasons, but at least two reasons are, first of all, he was continually engaging in sexually sinful behavior. And the more we feed the monster, the hungrier it becomes, not less. Sinful attempts to satiate his thirst was akin to drinking salt water in the desert. It only made things worse. So his continual giving in to sin made his experience harder, but so did his way of identifying. He saw the gay Christian label as the most accurate way to describe his experience. And that might have been what he truly believed. But that belief was resting on his feelings, his experience, and not the testimony of Scripture. Scripture calls this man in Romans 6.11 to consider himself dead to sin, and alive to God in Christ. Why does God demand this perspective on sin? Well, that we're dead to it. Well, it's because God knows that our beliefs about who we are impact our desires and our behaviors. So if you are facing a defeated foe, one who has been defanged, stripped of its power, and you know one day will be completely annihilated, well, then you have every reason to get up every single morning 
and continue to fight against this foreign enemy. And I praise God, I know many men and women who love Jesus and are fighting exactly in this way and experiencing tremendous victory. So as far as the celibacy solution goes hand in hand with a gay Christian identity, it is out of line with the way that scripture would direct our self-conception. But even if someone would reject the gay Christian label, telling a man or woman who struggles with same-sex attraction that celibacy is their only option in determining a future for them, well, we don't really have the authority at that point to say what only God can ultimately do for our future. It's prematurely cutting off the opportunity for a great blessing that God may have in store for them. More and more studies are showing that, by and large, people who marry will have a better quality of life than those who don't. Better health, better financial stability, better satisfaction in life overall. Now, of course, getting married does not guarantee those outcomes, just as remaining single does not guarantee the opposite of those. But it would be tragic to consider that we would be counseling an entire generation of people who God wants to bless through marriage into a wrong understanding of celibacy and how sexual attraction fits within marriage. In this sense, we need to consider Paul's warning in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said that, that those who forbid marriage are devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to the teachings of demons. It's sobering. But I believe it is a, there is a deceitful spirit behind this strong advocacy for the gay celibate Christian. It saddens me to think that many young men and women who could have had beautiful marriages with families in their 20s and 30s are now in their 40s and 50s, regretting putting off marriage because of the counsel of others. So this is the summary of the celibacy solution and the pros and cons to this approach. The second solution Uh, that is given for men and women wrestling with exclusive same-sex attraction is the opposite of that approach, and this we'll call the marriage solution. This is a response to many of the cons that I just mentioned in celibacy solution. It advocates that Christians wrestling with same-sex desires should place high emphasis on seeking marriage with someone of the opposite sex. While they would not go so far as to say that it is sinful for every Christian to remain single, They would say that in many, if not most cases, true repentance of same-sex desires would eventually lead to new desires for biblical marriage. They would also propose that the opposite, or sorry, the ethical opposite of same-sex desires is heterosexual desire within marriage. They would argue that Paul's description of the call to singleness in 1 Corinthians 7 was not describing someone wrestling with exclusive same-sex desires, but instead refers to those Christians who have the great gift of contentment in singleness. Therefore, it is not tied to a sense of inability to marry according to God's design. So what are the pros to the marriage solution? Well, the marriage solution fundamentally rejects the idea that exclusive same-sex attraction is tied to identity and therefore immutable. It also sees same-sex attraction as part of indwelling sin and therefore in need of repentance. It's an aspect of the Christian's experience that the gospel has the power to change. Pastors who advocate for this want believers who struggle with same-sex attraction to believe that God is powerful enough to bring about incredible change even at the level of our desires and attractions. The very heart of the gospel is the proclamation that what was impossible with man is possible with God. 
The marriage solution also rightly pushes back against an unhelpful feedback loop in the celibacy solution, in which the belief that heterosexual marriage is impossible actually prevents the possibility of it. Our our beliefs impact our desires, and vice versa. The more we believe a specific narrative, the more our expectations, hopes, and desires will be shaped by that narrative. If the narrative says that someone should abandon all realistic expectations of developing godly desires for marriage, then hope has no place to root itself. The desire will have no fertile soil to feed upon. Lastly, the marriage solution is a helpful pushback against our current culture that sees marriage as less and less important not only for the individual but for society as a whole. There is no doubt that marriage is an essential component of any healthy, thriving society. And the marriage solution understands that marriage should be the norm for most, not the exception. But there are cons to the marriage solution as well. The biggest problem with the marriage solution is that it turns the good opportunity of marriage into a command that Scripture does not warrant. There is no biblical backing to make a one-to-one correspondence between repentance and romantic desires. Sexual desire is never commanded for a single Christian. If a Christian is already married, then yes, they are to cherish, love, and pursue their spouse, which may include at times fanning the flame of desire so that their attractions are solely devoted to their spouse. It's also true that there may be a correlation between repentance and same-sex desires and the desire for marriage. As someone repents, the Lord may open their heart to the opportunity for marriage that he presents. But if someone is convinced that their exclusive same-sex attraction is core to their identity, then their unwillingness to consider marriage may indicate a lack of repentance. But this is a case-by-case issue of wisdom that needs great discernment. And this gets to the question of the goal of repentance. I would argue that the ethical opposite of same-sex lust is not heterosexual desire, but love. The ethical opposite of lust is love for God and love for neighbor. In these two, the entire law is summed up. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question 138, asks this question, what are the duties required in the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery? What are the positive duties required? The answer there focuses largely on chastity as the main way we positively fulfill that commandment. It says that marriage is a duty if someone does not have the gift of continency, which can be defined as the exercise of self-constraint in sexual matters. Self-constraint implies that there is something in need of restraining. Therefore, continency is not the absence of any type of sexual desire, whether hetero or homo, but the ability to live a life of faithful obedience to God while lacking the proper uh, context for sexual expression. And this, I believe, reflects Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7-9 when he says that those who cannot exercise self-control should marry. We cannot conclude, therefore, that the Bible requires marriage for someone who is faithfully repenting of sinful sexual desires with increasing self-control. So the problem with the marriage solution is that 
it ties a heavy burden upon the necks of our brothers and sisters that true repentance should always lead to marriage. It has too many similarities to the extra-biblical requirements of the pharisaical laws. So just as forbidding marriage goes beyond the testimony of Scripture, so does requiring it. So we need a third option, one that addresses both problems of the celibacy and the marriage solutions. And I would submit to you that this option be called the surrender solution. What is the surrender solution? Well, this says that if a brother or sister wrestling with exclusive same-sex desires asks you if they should pursue marriage, see this as an opportunity to encourage them to bring their desires with open hands before the Lord. Sometimes marriage seems to be the direction that God is pointing them. They largely experience exclusive same-sex attraction, but are open to marriage and desire to raise a family. If God calls them to marriage, there will be struggles as every marriage has struggles, but it will also be an ongoing means of sanctification in their lives and blessing. For others, their hesitancy to pursue marriage may be a lack of trust in their Heavenly Father, revealing an idolatrous desire for control. The issue is not marriage itself, but what the issue of marriage is revealing about their hearts. For still others, they may not desire to pursue marriage because they are living contented lives with self-restraint as a single believer. But for every Christian, married or or for every unmarried Christian, the possibility of marriage must be fully surrendered to God. He claims lordship over every part of our life. We should hold up everything to God with open hands, including marriage, singleness, our career, where we live, how we spend our time and money, and especially our desires. If you surrender to our Lord's perfect will in this area, he will lead you. Perhaps God has a long, thriving season of service in the kingdom that is only accomplished through singleness. That season of singleness may give way to marriage one day. The key is that your entire life is fully surrendered, devoted, dedicated to him. And this is the standard for all followers of Christ. We are all under the same standard. Jesus demands in Luke 14, 26 that we give him everything. The only proper response to God's amazing grace and salvation is to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. Our plans and our desires no longer have control, but the love of Christ controls us. Our flesh Our flesh naturally fights against this radical type of surrender, but the Spirit gently, persistently, patiently, and convincingly leads us into it. My former colleague, Dave White, he used to say that legalism and licentiousness are two opposite sides of the same coin. And what he meant by that is that they are both sinful attempts to avoid a relationship with God. In a similar way, forcing or forbidding marriage cuts off the life of prayer that is required when considering such a weighty matter. For some single brothers and sisters wrestling with same-sex attraction, God may be calling them to the scary work of praying about marriage. For others, they've been praying about it. They've submitted it to the Lord, and he's given them great contentment in his call of singleness over their life. So those are the three options we have as ministers to those who struggle with SSA and are asking questions about the possibility of marriage. 
given that I'm advocating for this third option, the surrender solution, I want to address two potential issues that you may be wondering about. The first one is the question of the role of sexual desire within marriage. By and large, especially for men, there is an implicit or explicit expectation that for a marriage to work, there has to be some fundamental underlying sexual attraction that precipitates the marriage covenant. But while that may be the most common experience for couples who get married, the reality is much more complex than some sexually charged magnetic pool that draws two people together. First, we have to admit that any kind of base layer sexual desire that starts in a marriage cannot be maintained by physical attraction alone. That a thriving, lasting, loving sexual relationship in a marriage takes proactive cultivation. The initial momentum that couples may feel when they're dating, when they're engagement, even in their early marriage, typically leads to a settled apathy and even neglect if a couple is not actively cultivating their relationship. So even amongst couples who would have said in the beginning of their marriage that there was a strong physical attraction and the desires were, were, uh, were very strong, physical attraction and desire will not sustain themselves for the long haul in and of itself. And hopefully that should not surprise any of us here. A proper, a proper biblical understanding of the role of sex within marriage leads us to conclude that the role of the relationship in a marriage is far outweighs any initial physical attractions in the quality of sexual intimacy. So this means that when we are so focused on physical attraction as a necessity for marriage to work, we are not accounting for what is plain for anyone who is married. Now, I'm not saying that physical attraction has no benefit. God clearly created us with this capacity, and and we can steward this to enhance our marriages, but... I want to put physical attraction in the proper perspective of the larger picture and argue argue that it should be actually of much less importance when it comes to helping men and women consider the viability of marriage for them. And to do that, I'm I'm going to borrow from an article from World Magazine back in 2013 from a pastor in the PCA named Sam Andriotis. And this article was entitled, What Ex-Gay Men Can Teach Us About Marriage. Sam interviewed many men who continue to wrestle with same-sex attraction, but are now married to women. In the article, he argues what many counselors and therapists have known all along, that emotional intimacy, not physical, is the prime determiner of a happy marriage. Sam says, emotional closeness is the thing that makes marriages last longer, grow stronger, and endure the more formidable shocks of life. As Sam interviewed many of these men, he heard the same theme coming up in their stories, that while SSA did present uh, real obstacles to their sexual intimacy with their wife, those seemingly insurmountable obstacles were overcome through emotional intimacy. Some of the men said things like this, the times I got excited were all emotional and psychological, or The tenderness, the patience of my wife toward me awakened our exploring of one another. Sam goes on to talk about how that particular emotional depth is only possible because of the complementarity of their gender differences. 
Sam counted 28 distinct reasons for why men were a- these men were able to connect so deeply with their wives because of their gender differences. Sam writes, Richness comes from differentness. Bringing distinct gifts to the relationship fosters unity. Relying on each other's varied responsibilities build trust. His, do- his not doing what she does or not being able to creates greater healthy dependence. Her gendered acts of service, distinct from his, support him, and his identity is secured by how he compliments her. The men interview go on to say, her femininity was, has very much enhanced my masculinity. And then a longer quote from a man, he says this, I need to dig down more to be able to, as a man, to meet her needs as a woman in a way that is very different than meeting the needs of a guy. One man knows typically what another man desires or needs in many different ways, and women tend to know the same for other women. It's impossible for two men to be challenged to the depth that opposite sex relationships are going to challenge us. I can actually become more than I ever thought I would be, to be more than I've ever been before in relationship to her, to meet her needs, to be for her what she needs. Testimonies like this can be of great benefit to a man or woman who doesn't feel much, if any, sexual attraction towards the opposite sex, but still has some longing for marriage. And what I love about this article from Sam in particular is that it flies in the face in what our culture says about marriage. Our culture says that marriage is all about satisfying my desires and my needs. But this article highlights how marriage is about changing me. It's about making me less selfish and more focused on serving. This article shows how God is making us more and more into the men and women he intends us to be, often through marriage. And this is, again, why blindly promoting celibacy as the only option for people wrestling with same-sex attraction is so concerning. Because it's not only removing a very possible means of great fulfillment in life, but it's also removing a very probable means of how God is going to sanctify this person and bring them closer to Christ. So that's one issue I want to address. The second issue is in regards, in regards to this topic of marriage. There's a passage I referred to earlier, which is 1 Corinthians 7-9, where Paul says, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, there are a lot of wrong ways to apply this passage. The most obvious would be to see marriage as merely a utilitarian necessity for pent-up sexual urges. But the, large, the Westminster Larger Catechism does rightly use this passage as a proof text, basically to say that marriage is a duty if someone does not have the gift of self-control in their singleness. Now, this is where we have to thread the needle very carefully. On the one hand, we can never blame sin on our circumstances. We can't say uh, to God that masturbation is unavoidable unless you give me a spouse. Self-control is not the fruit of marriage. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We would also not be so naive as to assume that simply getting married solves a latent pornography addiction. The majority of the men who seek out help from Harvest USA are married. So we know this is not what Paul is saying here. What I believe Paul is doing, though, in 1 Corinthians 7-9, 
is not making a firm theological connection between marriage and self-control, but instead he's giving very practical advice that to not heed may lead to a violation of the seventh commandment. What do we mean by that? Well, practically, pastorally, the way we can apply this passage in our counseling is when you're ministering to a single person who has little to no ambitions to getting married, but is consistently giving in to lustful temptations, you have to ask the question as to whether God's path forward for them is pursuing the proper context for sexual expression in marriage. God uses many means to sanctify us. We are not passive agents in our sanctification. We are all called to pursue all things that will promote godliness in our lives. And there is great wisdom when someone realizes that marriage for them may be the context which help, where help is provided to face many trials in their life, including sexual temptation. Many of you may have heard the non-biblical parable of the man drowning at sea. Uh, two boats and a helicopter all come by offering to give him help. And each time the man says, I don't need your help. God will save me. Lo and behold, the man drowns. And when he gets to heaven, he asks God why he didn't save him. To which God replies, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. God rarely works in instantaneous, dramatic ways in our lives to rescue us from bondage to sin and suffering. His means of help are usually much more ordinary. And they usually include us being faithful to walk in wisdom and to understand that God isn't always going to take, isn't always asking us to take the path of most resistance. I see uh, people who complain about their depression or a sense of aimlessness in life, but they refuse every practical advice offered to them to get a job, to start volunteering, to come to church small group, to faithfully attend Sunday worship. In similar ways, singles who cannot exercise self-control in the area of lust are not being faithful if they have not deeply considered prayed about and even pursued the possibility of marriage and all that accompanies that prospect. I know there are probably many other implications and situations you can think of that I haven't been able to address for the sake of time, but in closing, I want to remind us of the first two principles I started this talk with. First, we want to remember to be rock solid in our biblical convictions about what God has said for life and faith in glorifying him. If we falter on scripture, our advice will not lead to someone's ultimate flourishing in Christ. But knowing the biblical principles is merely the foundation for the hard, long work of walking with someone through the ups and downs of life. You have to know the people you're ministering to. You have to take the time to get to know the person in front of you. What might be the right pathway for one person may not be a very wise path for another. And this is the kind of patient shepherding and what it looks like to obey God's good law, to love God and to love your neighbor. Lastly, I know that my talk has largely focused on pastoral counseling situations, but I want to encourage anyone here who may be asking these questions for yourself. If you struggle in these ways and you're asking God for wisdom and direction, I want you to know that your Heavenly Father can be trusted. He will not give you a scorpion when you ask for an egg, 
or a serpent when you ask for a fish. He loves you. He purchased you for his prized possession. He wants to lavish you with good things that result in praise and thanksgiving to his name. You can trust God with your desires, your future, and your entire life. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.